Jesus Church College. Join hosts Richard Tamburrow and Molly Inman as they chat with other faculty and guests about church, the Bible, theology, and learning the way of Jesus here in Portland. Today we're talking about the cross and how it makes a difference to us. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. So I'm Richard, I'm here with Ryan. Hello. Pause for invitation. And Hakeem. Shalom. (laughs) And uh, full disclosure, there's construction going on at church, so it may get noisy. And I think it's affecting us. We're all like cats that have been cooped up indoors or something. We're all a little weird. Um, But that's okay. And we are going to talk about the cross. So we've been going through finishing the Gospel of John in church, and it's just provocative, like loads of big ideas. And so one of them is that the cross is this kind of climax of the story of God, of the work of God, reconciling humanity, dealing with everything. But when you say to people, oh, so like what difference does the cross make? Um, you get, um, well, you do get people sort of ha- giving a standard answer. There's mm-hmm. a standard answer in the West that right. people are aware of, right? right? But, and this kind of epitomizes it for me. I was talking to a really awesome couple at church and they were talking about like, oh yeah, like my, my daughter's at college and she's doing this class and she's really questioning like how we talk about the gospel and the cross and and they were like, whoa. And then we had like some really good chat for a couple of Sundays about just there is more in scripture and more in the Christian tradition than one quite mm-hmm. narrow way of talking about this. Yeah. And so when we started to talk about it, they were like, oh, this is really cool. This is exciting. Like, I want to take the class she's doing. or I want to read some books. And yeah. And I, I think it's partly like it can be liberating. It can rejuvenate like re-energize the conversation but also for lots of people the sort of standard answer is like uh, okay but that's a bit weird mm. and so sometimes talking about the weirdness of it and thinking like other ways to talk about the cross that might make more sense to people it helps us understand our interaction with god and talk to others as well so it's super mm. practical as well so should we do standard answer yes right <laughs> And so we'll we'll throw this out. So I'll give like the way I might explain it to a five-year-old mm-hmm. and you guys elaborate a bit. So it'd be something like we have sinned and so we are carrying around with us a constant like threat of being wiped out by God. Mm. Like we deserve just being killed. Um and that's a punishment for sin. And Jesus comes and on the cross, all of that, hey, you got to die because you're a sinner. Somehow our guilt and our sin, then Jesus actually takes that punishment. Hmm. And so he's like our substitute. It's like someone needs, this is like the old medieval whipping boy. Like, 
if you were an aristocrat or royalty, you know, and a kid in school and you needed punishment, it's like, oh yeah, you need like 10 of the best with a cane, mm. but you're, you're a prince. So then your whipping boy gets 10 of the best because you got your maths homework wrong or something like that. Yikes. So it's that kind of substitute. That's terrible. Um, but then the but then the substitute. So then our punishment is dealt with, but also that leaves us as like a blank slate. And then if we're actually going to have a relationship with God, we're supposed to be righteous. Hmm. And so then Jesus not only deals with punishment, but also he's righteous because he's God. And once he's dealt with our punishment, then he can kind of give us like substitute over to us his righteousness so that when God looks at us, he's like, you're okay, dude. Because when I look at you, I don't see you, I see Jesus. That's the sort of phrase, right? Okay. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, I would, how would say... You, how would you ex- expand that view? Yeah, I mean, at least when I came into the faith, it was always explained. Like, I came up within the... When I first came to faith, I was a teenager, and I got introduced to, like, the Reformed tradition. So it was heavy substitutionary atonement, penal substitution. Um, oh, yeah. And we should say, like, that view is a form of what we call penal substitution. Yeah. So there's different names for different ways of thinking about yeah. what Jesus does on the cross. Yeah. And the whole, like, Adam sinned, everybody's a sinner, you deserve to die. Essentially what you said, um, but Jesus, you know, took the punishment for sin. He paid it in full. Yeah. And even when I got involved in like black churches, he paid it all. All of it is paid for. And I'm like, praise God. I don't, I, I want whatever he did. And it kind of just stayed there, though. It was like he died for your sins. And now you can go to heaven when you die. That's that's what I got introduced to. And I was like, yeah. so him dying means that I get to live forever. Oh, that's kind of dope. And I kind of just stuck with that for a couple yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. Like, yeah. there's a way of telling the gospel that you encountered that's all about escape. Yeah. And then sometimes Christians live as if life on earth is all about waiting to escape. Yep. And sometimes that's not that's not a great biblical view Uh-oh. of Christian life or mission or something. Here's the can. We're <laughs> just trying to <laughs> pop Worms the everywhere. <laughs> yeah. The other the other thing to um, you mentioned in passing there is like, oh yeah. I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty because of something Adam did. Mm-hmm. So that's commonly a part of this view. Yep. It's like, even if you think you're a good person, you still, because Adam sinned, you've somehow like inherited or his sin is imputed to you or, or yeah. something, some language like that, right? Yeah, it was a really low view of humanity as well. It was like, you are just utterly depraved and the vile of like the earth Mm -hmm. and i was just like yo that sucks like i don't want (laughs) i don't want to be that so what do i gotta do uh believe that jesus died for your sins i was like all right let's call it a day yeah so that's the yeah that's the the form of the the message that i got what about you rye yeah uh, i certainly grew up in um a strong tradition of the kind of substitutionary atonement um uh kind of yeah tradition of of what the cross is um and uh went to seminary in a in that kind of tradition uh, western seminary certainly has 
um, well, it's a Baptist in its origins and yeah. still fairly strongly reformed mostly. Um, and so holds pretty tightly to that. Um, it's not the only thing that they teach, but it's certainly kind of, uh, they w- many of the people would say that it's the foundation of what happens on the cross and mm-hmm. the atonement um, is that substitutionary uh, piece that, um, and, and I would say, I think, um, and this is probably why I struggle sometimes with uh, the, the way that it gets presented um, as kind of like, sometimes you'll hear people say like, oh, well, it's essentially divine child abuse. Or um, I was listening to Catholic radio uh, recently and surprisingly, actually, because there is um, a strong sense of substitutionary atonement in much of the Catholic tradition. Um, and uh, one of the hosts of the show presented it in kind of that way, only he presented it more in like this elderly brother who came in and found um, the father getting ready to um, beat the younger child for, you know, breaking a lamp or something like that. And that the elderly brother kind of steps in and says, Hey, don't like stop beating them. Like they like beat me instead. Like it's okay. They didn't, you know, they didn't know any better or they, they, it was an accident or something like that, which doesn't paint the picture very well. Um, uh, but so I, I struggle with some of those just simply because like, um, I think the way I grew up and it was not so much that kind of caricaturized version, whereas it was explained to me much more, uh, early on and in seminary much more and like the wages of sin are, is death. Um, so somebody got to die. Some, somebody's going to die for yeah. the, the, as the wages of sin that's promised back there in the very beginning with Genesis. And it's a promise and just kind of an expectation of what happens when we sin against God all throughout the storyline of scripture. And then you get it stated explicitly like that in Romans, um, you know, uh, what is that? Eight, three, um, the wages of sin is death. And and Jesus then instead decided to take on the wages of not his own sin, obviously, but our sin. Or you think of like the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe and the way Aslan, um, sorry, spoiler alerts for all you who don't know anything <laughs> about the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe yet. It's on you. It's been out for a long time. So, um, and in many different forms. It's been 50 years. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, books, <laughs> BBC versions of like movies and stuff like that. You've had time. Um, so, uh, but Aslan dies for um, Edmund, who's uh, taken, you know, who, who's kind of served the the White Witch. And mm-hmm. uh, all for, um, what are what are they? Richard, you know this. You're British. Uh, what, what is it that he... <laughs> That he was oh, eating. he took um, yeah, that Turkish he delight. Turkish delight. There we go. With a little um, jelly in it. Yeah, it they good. look really good in the. They it, look really good in jelly. the new movie. It's, it's weirdly different. It's like nothing you will taste. It's kind of like a jelly, but but not as sweet, and it's it's less flavored and more scented. Like it's got that kind of rose water hmm. type of. It's like it's like putting a bunch of flowers in your mouth. Oh, see, the new movies makes it look just like uh, mochi or something like that. But yeah. with like strawberry jam as ice cream or something. See, if I'd known, well, we could have had Turkish <laughs> yeah, yeah. Delight as snack of the podcast. Oh, we there could we have go. tried it yeah. and freaked you both out. <laughs> oh, well. another missed opportunity. Uh, yeah. Well. <laughs> Do that at home. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, w- the way it's kind of presented there and, you know, Lion snaps at the White Witch is like, don't don't recite the, the book to me or, you know, the, the magic to me or whatever. Like, mm. 
I was there when it was written. I know what's up. And uh, he dies instead of Edmund, despite the fact that Edmund certainly deserves to die as a traitor. Um, but because Aslan was a substitute and actually didn't deserve death himself and substituted it, that sort of substitutionary kind of innocent death sort of thing is what actually like glitched death out and Mm. broke it and won a victory over death. And so Jesus rises again from the dead because he'd never actually deserved to die in the first place. He just did it for us. Um, So that's kind of how it was presented to me um, throughout my life. Yeah, and so this way of like, it's not that this way is just non-biblical. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. So the idea of substitution, the idea of sin having a penalty attached to it, or the idea of punishment, like these are concepts in the biblical worldview, and they're in scripture. They're used, um, but as a historical note, telling the gospel story or telling the story of the cross where you can use some kind of uh, sort of metaphor or illustration that basically explains this penal substitution and say, and that's the gospel. Yeah. Like yep. that is both decidedly Western. And so like that's like you go to the Eastern Orthodox Church or Russian Orthodox Church or go into like the ancient African church or like other places, you're going to see that actually the lens through which they find their way through scripture, the anchor point is, is going to be maybe something different, Mm -hmm. but also it's not just limited as a sort of Western perspective, but it's also historically limited. Like this is not an idea that's throughout the 2000 years of the Christian tradition. Again, talking about substitution or maybe not that language, but mm-hmm. talking about those, I, I mean, it would have been Latin and Greek, so obviously different words. But yes. <laughs> talking about those concepts, um, like, but but saying that is the core foundational essence of what the cross is yes. about and everything else is kind of supplementary, that is really only as old as sort of, well, not even the Reformation. It kind of comes after the Reformation, mm-hmm. sort of develops in the hundred years after the Reformation mm-hmm. in Western Europe, and so it's it's sort of limited historically and culturally, and so like the job of a theologian is to kind of we want to be as faithful to everything Scripture has to offer us, yeah. right? Yeah, and so partly it's like, oh well, we want to look at the Bible and say you know, are there any questions we should ask that would help us notice we may have missed a bit of the story or might not be telling it holistically Mm -hmm. or might be getting a part of it wrong? But also the job of the theologian is to take the truth that God has laid out in the midst of another culture and say, how can I tell that story faithfully to another culture, my culture, Mm -hmm. thousands of years later, right? And so... That's where things get interesting then. If we realize like, oh, there's a chance that penal substitution equals the whole of the gospel is a historical and cultural anachronism, then I might go and ask some really good questions. That's where we want to kind of get to, right? Mm. Um, So I wonder if a good way into this is coming from our culture, from our stories, you know, um, like what are questions we bump into 
in penal substitution where we're like, uh, really? Like, does that make sense? Or is that, you know, those sort of things that a three-year-old would put the hand up in Sunday school and be like, yeah, but what about this? Like, just ask the question. Because mm-hmm. I feel like this is classic adult church. Like, yeah. we've got questions, but we're like, I don't know. We know enough about the Bible to know it's somewhat biblical, but we don't know enough to know whether we're allowed to question it. So yeah. we, so we kind of like hold on to our questions, right? Yeah. And sorry, real, real quick, as a history um, nerd, a little bit uh, like early church fathers and stuff, I do want to make a quick note because you said like it's fairly new that this is uh, talking about the newness kind of of it. Yeah. It, it's not so much that the concept again of penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, the broad concepts, um, certainly not that language, but the broad concepts of that is new. That's fairly old. For one, because it is biblical to some degree. Paul wrote it down, so that's uh, yes, pretty old. So, so that's pretty old. <laughs> and then you do have, because a, a common argument these days, at least within um, my circles of like going to theology conferences or whatever, of trying to like completely get rid of this substitutionary atonement idea, um, is to say that it's really new and that it's like, like it, that nobody was even thinking in terms of broad concepts of substitution until post-Reformation. Yeah. Maybe they'll sometimes date it a little bit earlier than that, but it's certainly not much earlier than that. And so still pretty middle ages yeah. at least or something like that new. Yeah. And I would just say you at least see some hints of the concepts within Augustine, Athanasius. You see it in some of the apostolic fathers, um, you know, Clement's yep. epistle to the Corinthians and stuff like that. So yep. you do see some Very of those nice. comments pretty, pretty early. Um, but it, as far as it be like, what happened on the cross is this, that is a new, it, it's back then it was seen as like, it's more than this, but it's not less than this. It's kind of the yep. way some of the early, like to, to make a metaphor about the metaphors of the atonement. Yes. This yeah. would be like, you know, I think the three of us are going to want to suggest like thinking about the atonement or the work of Jesus on the cross or something like that is a cake that's got like a lot of ingredients. Mm -hmm. Like it's, there's lots of flavors to taste. The mistake is making penal substitution. The mistake actually would be taking any sort of idea of penalty or substitution out of the cake. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, it's not cake anymore. You've taken the flour out. Why are you messing with my cake? Yeah. (laughs) But the other mistake would be just to serve people a bowl of flour and be like, there's a cake. Like, no, dude, like, (laughs) where's the sugar? Where's the frosting? I want, like, I want strawberries in here. I want, like, I want decoration. Like, Mm -hmm. and so it's, that's sometimes where things go wrong. Yeah. And, you know, it's, this is uh, an interesting one of, like, we end because we strive to tell a simple story because that's how we get to to reach people. Like you know, invite your neighbor over and be like, "Oh, dude, you know, you have an hard time. Let me tell you about Jesus. He made such a difference to me." And then like they sit there for sixteen hours while you detail. Mm. <laughs> you know, it just goes so horribly wrong. So we want to be able to say something in two minutes, and that's an interesting one where within the sensibilities of the Western world, when this way of the telling telling the story came to the foreground, that it's just that's another interesting question about like, was this a, actually for then a good way? Like, oh, this is the way into the story. Let's focus on this bit. Mm. And maybe our cultures change, which means it's just not a good way in anymore. Yeah, right. 
I, I think also there's layers of like, oh yeah, but it also became kind of the only way. And yep. yeah, it was effective, but maybe not always for good reasons. Maybe we capitalized on some brokenness in culture, which maybe yeah. actually we don't want to be doing as missionaries. Mm-hmm. Or Yeah, so it's a really complicated question. Yeah. But yeah. Ah, good. So with just one podcast, we'll unravel all of this. <laughs> right, but from our cultural <laughs> moment now, yeah. right? So let me throw one out there, right? Oh, yeah, you're a sinner because of Adam. What? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm not a sinner because of Hakeem. I'm not a sinner because of Ryan. Like, I couldn't be. There's nothing Ryan could do. There's no sin Ryan could perform that would make me a sinner. Mm-hmm. So how on earth am I guilty for something Adam did? So that's a standard way of sometimes telling the story that our moral compass in this culture. And so that leaves us with the question of like, so is our cultural moral compass wrong? And we just need to learn that we can be guilty for other people's sins. Or... Is, is it making us ask a question that maybe we haven't got that bit of how we tell the story right or we're not doing justice to all the scripture has to offer on that. So there's one concern. Mm-hmm. Like what are some other ones with with the standard approach that <laughs> get you guys thinking? Um, what does Jesus dying have, have for me right now? That's the questions I've been dealing with in my two kind of cultural backgrounds, like being black, but also uh, being of indigenous descent. Like if you just come with this gospel that just talks about, hey, you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sin. Now you don't have to go to hell anymore. Like, what? The, okay, what does that do for me right now, though? Mm-hmm. And if we go, let me just do a little, little tiny bit of history real quick. Let's just go to American history. Black people start in America, slaves, right? For the most part. Um, when you say, hey, you're a sinner, Jesus died for your sins. It's like, cool. What does that do for my liberation from slavery right now, though? What do you tell a slave girl who's getting abused by her master? Is that good news to her? That like, hey, Jesus died for your sins, you don't go to hell. Oh, that's great. But like, <laughs> I'm dealing with this right now. Yeah. Then let's let's bolster that up to the civil rights era. Jesus died for your sins. Great. Um, but I still want to be able to vote. I want to be able to have the same... Uh, access to water fountains and countertops at a restaurant that'd be yep. that'd be dope or even today hey jesus died for your sins man that's cool but like i'm dealing with mass incarceration and i'm dealing with community development and making sure we have an equitable education system like i want to make sure that that's that's cool i'm glad i'm glad jesus did all of that but what does that do for the here and now mm-hmm. then you go over here hundreds of years ago what happened you got these folks coming over from europe and now you got some beef and then war breaks out and conquering happens and a lot, it's just, it's wild. So then you got, you, you die of disease. What does that do for you right now as an indigenous person on this continent? Yeah. What does that do? Yeah. What liberation are you seeking? And the right? key word in there you say is like good news. Yeah. What so good, like what how, because that? that, I mean, you can just, it doesn't take much historical imagination to imagine a black slave or not actually, but yeah. just with that heritage yeah. saying, well, that's good news for you. For you. That's your good news. But this isn't something. universal good news. Yeah, I need good news yeah. that'll help not just with my future, but with my today. Yeah. And you got natives on reservations. You go imagine going up to a reservation. What, what do we got down here? We got uh what's the what's the Kanita? Imagine going to Kanita reservation, just hey, I got some good news for y'all. Jesus died for your sins, because you're a sinner and 
now you don't have to go to what? Like they're gonna look at you. What are you talking about, bro? Mm-hmm. And then there's a bunch of stuff. So yeah. all of that is what does that have to do with me? What, what does yeah. that have to do for and me? You know, and there's, what does there's, that have to do? I mean, everyone's got that question. Yeah. You know, you're getting angry with your kids and you don't seem to be able to tame it, or you continually having a fight with your wife and you don't know what to do about it. Like, does the good news of the gospel have anything to do mm-hmm. with our experience every day or is it is it only good news for man it's crap but one day we'll be out of here and then (laughs) you'll be like oh it is good news yeah man it didn't feel like it for a lifetime but but now i get it we're here now yeah no bro your your gospel proclamation it definitely includes what jesus has done on the cross but it has to be an approach to a more holistic way of life so I see that is a yeah. resistance that I'm doing all the time. And that's a good, like, just to be clear, that's not just a, oh, man, this culture, we just, like, like to have our felt needs tickled. And Hakeem's <laughs> got a felt need. This is a biblical thing of, like, the Bible says that it's really universal, tangible good news that the blind are seeing, the mm. deaf hear, the lame are healed. Like, prisoners the, set free. Hope, prisoners yeah. set free. The, there's something immediate like the good news is supposed to tell a story that feels good when you hear it mm-hmm. not oh yeah one day that'll be good mm-hmm. so somehow this story's got to tick those boxes yeah yeah absolutely it's good yeah Ryan's i think discombobulated um, now he's like, well Ooh. no i just there's so many <laughs> because all of it just in my mind i'm just like seeing all these things unravel and being like okay you can't talk about all of them um because part of it's like well that's not just wrong theories of the cross or the atonement. I mean, that's just the pro- the very problem with that. It's like what you were saying. It's like, it has to involve like what Christ on the cross certainly is a part of the gospel, but it can't be the whole of the gospel for one, because it completely ignores like Jesus's whole incarnational life. Like mm-hmm. what was he doing? Right. What does his teachings have to do with the gospel? Did he only ever teach about the cross? He talked about the cross sometimes, but he clearly didn't talk about the cross quite enough because the disciples never believed him right. <laughs> that he was right. actually going, that it was actually right. going to lead to a cross for him mm-hmm. so much. So most of them weren't even at the cross. Um, they were just like, Oh, that was today. Uh, whoops. Like they didn't even, they still didn't believe it. Nothing. It's sad anyway. So we need to include in our gospel a whole heck of a lot more. And that's still only the new Testament. If we're only talking about Jesus, mm-hmm. where does the old Testament come in on the gospel? Mm-hmm. Is that just like to show us how bad everything was before the gospel came in? Is that literally all the old Testament is for? Mm. Or is there maybe like we've created a canon within the canon where the gospel being the most important thing about the Christian faith can only really be found in like a few short little stories in a few of the short little books that we have in the last 27 books of our entire 66 book canon Mm -hmm. and that's really the most important canon within the larger canon of 66 books now we have a messed up doctrine of scripture anyway so that's why i say i'm like (laughs) what all can we talk about not that (laughs) so but i think another thing too is um, i I love what you you know we just pick for a podcast a question that's (laughs) insane to have an under an hour chat about yeah awesome but that's okay it just means we have to have more chats later yeah um <laughs> just shooting ourselves in the feet theologically every week it's great times entertaining for them and uh hair pulling out for us but yeah. you know whatever um the other thing too i think of what Hakim was saying that i think is particularly problematic when you limit the gospel or even just the atonement to this the one theory of the cross we've talked about so far 
is that, in fact, that's not only not really that good of news when you limit it to that, to the people of color, to the indigenous people and stuff like that, that you're like going up to on a reservation being like, hey, Jesus died for your sin because you're a guilty, guilty, dirty, rotten sinner. Mm -hmm. That doesn't help them. In fact, actually, the problem is, is what ends up turning into is saying, hey, Jesus died for the sins of all the people. So the people oppressing you, you have to forgive them. Mm. But you've not actually given them any good news yet. So instead, all you've done is tell them how they need to forgive the people who have hurt them, which is honestly what it turned out to be a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. The focus on slavery texts and stuff like that was like connecting atonement stuff to the fact that like slaves just obey your masters Mm -hmm. and forgive them when they're a little too harsh on you. And like that was the kind of stuff that was told to them. Well, not only is that now not just empty of good news it's actually bad news because it's it's devoid of good news for them and really good news for the guilty sinners who aren't even living in a way as if they're forgiven or maybe they're living too much as if they've been forgiven so they can just keep on sinning which Mm. is paul says heck no essentially yeah like legitimately he pretty much says by no means but just go find someone who knows greek that's a very strong way of saying like no you moron like that's not <laughs> what the cross means is that you just get to keep on sinning i'd love to know like the line of words that we're trying to get out of your mouth there <laughs> uh, yeah seven yeah. now we're on the tip of the tongue yeah it's not a video podcast um <laughs> i was sold out anyway uh, anyway so <laughs> but yeah so um but i think a, a lot of that comes from too is like that talking about like cultural pieces that kind of fill into and why we end up focusing on this is because we've been primarily a, uh, like a guilt innocence sort of thing. Like we're yeah. looking for something to help strike us of the guiltiness that we feel. Yeah. And the reason why that ends up becoming not such good news is because, in fact, we, we think we're only a guilt innocence sort of thing, that we only think about like whether you are innocent or you are guilty. We actually, do, we're human beings, so we feel like shame, and we, we have feelings of like, pride or like honor or something like that, that we want, we want to be, you know, be honorable to other people and make other people proud. But we actually almost just stuff those feelings down a lot because hmm. we, we have not had any real way of being able to think through those ideas healthily. And part of that I think is because even in the Christian tradition in the West, we've not had a way of talking about the cross that speaks to shame and and honor and like Mm -hmm. things like that like it's it's been a very lopsided sort of i think of uh nemo uh and finding nemo who's got the fin Mm -hmm. uh, one fin that swims real well and the one that's kind of a small little fin and doesn't really do anything good for him and that's kind of what our our gospel has been for a long time or Mm -hmm. like our atonement theories has been one side really strong and focused on and the other side kind of yeah i mean that gets back you know when i said like this may have been an effective way to communicate in this sort of post-renaissance world of the reformation but it spoke to something that was broken Mm -hmm. it's like people had a very keen awareness because it was how they were interacted with on a regular basis of whether they were guilty whether they had done what they were told or not Mm -hmm. but all that served to do was to stratify society, yeah. right? And so you had the haves and the haves not. You had the powerful and the powerless. You had the, you know, the ones who told you what to do and the ones who had to do it. And you know, um, and it just 
inc- it, that stratification worked its way from the grand scheme of like aristocracy to the lower classes all mm. the way into like employment and even into families you know and there's more of a measure of a society than whether people are in the right place in the in the strata and whether they're guilty or not mm-hmm. like you might want a family to include such things as love and respect like which is a part of the honor thing mm-hmm. um trust you know which gets to sort of relational terms which you know guilt affects our relationships but we're never going to explain whether a relationship's right mm. by just explaining like man Ryan, do you feel guilty towards me <laughs> like do you feel like you need forgiveness like sometimes you know like you stole my favorite book <laughs> it's probably going to be in the foreground but Oops. other times yeah i want that book back <laughs> mm. <laughs> um right. yeah so right. so that's and and so, but it's interesting because the way you're talking about it is like the church this is uh, the tricky thing for theologians sometimes and for preachers, mm-hmm. which hopefully those two are coming together, right? Yep. Um, the way we tell the gospel, it, like we need to understand the hooks that people will actually go for in culture. But also if that's all we do, we're not casting a vision that's more holistic. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, it's just an interesting challenge for discipleship right yeah i was actually listening to uh somebody from an eastern orthodox tradition talk about like what happened on the cross that was like the title of the video Mm -hmm. i listened for like 40 something minutes and i was just intrigued by how similar like even in a protestant tradition some of those elements are and then how different like some of those perspectives were and what i've been getting intrigued in into or intrigued by um, that they mentioned was like this whole idea of like recapitulation. Mm-hmm. So if you think about Genesis three, like you have Adam and Eve um, who who have an opportunity to eat of the tree of life, but they failed the test, right? And they they lose access to immortality. And he was saying that they had a potential, and I think he was quoting the theologian like, oh, they had a potential to gain immortality and to be in communion with God forever, and you know, do all of the good stuff. And now Jesus comes to re- recapitulate the story of, of Adam and Eve, right? In, in this garden narrative, by him being this new Adam figure, and instead of taking sin off of a tree, metaphorically speaking, he puts sin back on a tree, and he is the tree of life, but he is the one through whom brings immortality to those who seek uh, redemption in him. So he's like, reversing this Genesis 3 effect. And I think we were talking about this, Ryan, like a couple weeks ago. But like from the tree of life, there was this river that like spread into all of these things. And like Jesus' sides gets pierced and his blood and water starts to gush out of him. It's like a new river that Mm -hmm. that spreads out to the four corners of the earth. Like it's just, it's wild. But anyways, I just love this idea. And on another level, I know you want to come back to that. I see it on your face. But on another yeah, level... we've got to start having a camera on him because like <laughs> his face tells the rest of the podcast. Oh, it tells it all. <laughs> and, and, and on another level, uh, Jesus is not only like a second Adam, but he's like a second Israel where he's reliving the story of the Tanakh, really, like the mm-hmm. Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, whatever you want to call it. Um, and now he's, he's reliving exile where he did everything from being birthed 
in, in like miracle, like Sarah and Abraham, now Joseph and and, uh, and Mary, I almost forgot her name, <laughs> one second, and Mary, and doing all of the stuff of Egypt and coming through the waters and, you know, conquest type stuff when he comes to, to liberate from disease and demonically oppressed people and all mm-hmm. of that stuff. He's like doing a new conquest, driving out evil and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's, he's the and, prophet yeah. and all of that stuff, giving these teachings, new Torah. I mean, well, uh, the, the clearest version of understanding for the Torah, all of this stuff. And now it's like we're in the exile point of the Israel story. He's driven outside of the city. He's at Golgotha and he's exiled. And we know the story about him returning, but in this moment, he's recapitulating the story of Israel. I was just like, yo, this is fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why don't we hear more of that? Yeah, and that it. doesn't take away from Jesus dying on the cross as our substitute to pay the penalty for, for sins and all of that stuff. It incorporates all of that, but it's just another perspective yeah. on how to look at that stuff. And that gets to, like, you mentioned, Ryan, at the start, this, like, so in terms of us being reconciled to God or atonement or these sorts of things like is the cross the only thing that makes a difference like is jesus's life irrelevant like did it not really matter what he Mm. did or or is that relevant to some other thing but not really to atonement right and so the this other tradition of thinking about the atonement which is a a set of lots of different approaches right but yeah they they um I don't know, a genus of atonement theories or something. <laughs> I like <laughs> right. your vocabulary, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's another way, again, it's not just in the Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. It's throughout the Church Fathers. Yeah. But, with the but in some traditions and in some cultures and in some points of history, it's been more of the front door mm-hmm. of thinking about it. Yeah. And especially in the Orthodox. And it's interesting, like a modern evangelical scholarship, like thinking about, so one of the sort of, technical terms that gets used in this theology that we ad- we adopt from our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters is theosis. Mm-hmm. And scholarship looking at and trying to understand like biblically, metaphysically, like all these different ways, theosis is a cottage industry the last 20 years. Mm. And it's because this is like one of these beautiful, like how theology should work. Like one culture of evangelical, mainly white Western people over here like actually started to interact with some theologians from another culture and another place and realized oh my goodness you're right like Mm. this is all over the bible Mm. we just it doesn't stand out to us so it's like for us it's almost like the filler in between the bricks but you guys have seen that i know it's the bricks like it's not just the filler and it's sparked a kind of revolution in theology not of like oh let's completely change the gospel story but just like I don't know, like taking something that was two D, like, and then twisting it and being like, "Oh, there's another dimension," mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's kind of a, it's actually a really cool story in our time. Yeah. Like theology is being so enriched by a really good cross cultural exchange and learning. Right? Yeah. So, so what? Like, let's break it down because uh, the, there's so many more questions we could throw out of penal substitution, right? But this now, let's see how this, like, what, what's the two-minute version of telling this story and then like how does it answer some of the questions we've thrown out we care about right Mm. so who feels confident for a two-minute off the top of the dome everyone's got their eyebrows raised 
I'm gonna go with I'm gonna throw Ryan under the bus. He just tried. Yeah, to, I he just, just put, he just pointed point my fingers at you. He he just, yo, that's like nose goes. I, I was already over here. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been funny if you. I right, I'll throw this out there. Right? There you go. So <laughs> I'm I'm gonna try and like weave the language carefully to leave it open to some of the breadth of these views. But the idea would be something like when God made Adam. Adam was the first of his kind mm-hmm. of human. And when Adam fell, there was a new kind in the world, fallen human. And because of our relationship to Adam, because we are in his lineage, like my kids are going to look like me, talk like me. Man, the tragedy of parenting is you realize your kids have got all the worst bits of you as well as all the good stuff you're trying to get into them. right? Mm-hmm. And so the when Adam got broken, his ability to produce what God produced went away. Adam and human society, the human, that first human social unit of Adam and Eve, it, it lost its ability to produce the actual blueprint and it could only produce the broken version. So we are all Adamish. Mm-hmm. And so he's like our representative of the kind. So what, what kind of human am I? I'm like, I'm, on, I'm the fallen Adam kind. And this is like Romans 5 talks about this, uses this language. So what we need then is some way to like get to the actual blueprint of like what humans are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus comes and uh, recapitulate is an English word, but recapitulation, we're, we're diving into the Latin language there and thinking of like a head. And so Adam's like our head, our capitas, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we need like a new head. We need to be, we need some kind of, we need to get out from under the, oh yeah, I'm Adam's, the fallen Adam kind, and get into the, oh, I'm this new kind, right? So Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. So he comes as the broken blueprint mm-hmm. and he inhabits broken blueprintness right but he's filled with the spirit and he's god and all of the risks of that brokenness manifesting in sin in hurting people in hurting god in self-destruction he conquers through all of his life and it kind of climaxes in the ultimate i don't know adam and eve's moment was one of like weakness manifesting in pride where they like reached out and they're like well i could trust god but i think i'll just take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil like i'm sure we can do it ourselves because i'm confused about god or i don't quite trust him or uh, satan's done done number on me and he's there in the garden and he's like utter weakness same weakness utter dependency but he says father every fiber of my being doesn't want to die today Hmm. but if it's your will i will trust you and so jesus takes this broken blueprint and it's put the most tremendous test and he heals it like he actually takes the broken it's like he's remodeling humanness within his own soul and person and being He's knocking down walls. He's putting new stuff up. He's not allowing that bit to fall over. He's propping this bit up. The Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's in there, 
like oh we need a wall here oh it's okay i've got the holy spirit he'll do that bit because i ain't got that because i'm broken and and you get you get the like perfect architecture of humanness and so jesus then becomes a new creation a recreation of humanness and so he gets to be this the the trendsetter the the maker the creator of a new kind of human and then and so he he does he achieves that on the cross by like his his death and i'm i'm talking about i'm bringing into focus the obedience part in the cross but there's loads of other factors in there mm-hmm. the penal bits as well and punishment and separation and like loads of stuff um but then also by being raised and ascending is sort of vindicates God's stamp of like acceptance and approval and relationship and like the highway, the connection between God and human is like, yes, this is it. This works. Mm -hmm. This is the thing. And so then the cross makes a difference to us because we can see the possibility that our broken humanness can be healed because Jesus shows it's possible, then what Jesus extends to us is, hey, through a faith relationship with me, you can participate in my new creation version of humanity because the Holy Spirit will come in to your life and actually the remodeling that needs to happen, he'll do it in you too. And when you've got the Holy Spirit in you, even though the remodeling's in progress, the contract is signed. Mm. The project is undertaken. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, like we kind of, so this that sense of like escape and destiny is like, yeah. So I know I know my trajectory, but it's also a bit more rooted in the like oh, so like life and not just on earth but forever is about them becoming like Jesus, and that's how he's going to save me, is by remodeling me because he's got the power and God's then released in his spirit the power to go make this a reality in other humans so it's interesting like we yeah jesus is like he he's because he's both kinds he forms a bridge yeah i said two minutes that was a lot longer than two minutes but i had a really hard time explaining it so all right i'm finger on nose point at hakeem because that's apparently now how we do it say something like deep and meaningful about (laughs) recapitulation yeah, I think I think Jesus comes to fulfill what God always intended for humanity. And in the beginning God crafted the universe and he crafted humanity to be his co-rulers in a way or to reign on his behalf on the earth. And humans decided to rebel. The the first humans or Adam and Eve <laughs> decided to rebel and failed the test to abide by the ruling reigns, uh, the, the the rules of rulership on the earth, and they forfeit that. And ergo, humanity now starts to craft these other types of kingdoms contrary to the kingdom that God had already established that creation. Mm-hmm. So then God said, you know what? I still have this intention for humanity, so I'm going to craft a new people through whom I'm going to fulfill this intention. And that's how the story of Israel comes out through Abraham and Sarah and their descendants and the nation comes up and God inaugurates again, like another inauguration of his kingdom on earth through this nation as they wander in the wilderness, as they go into this homeland that they were promised to be theirs. And then again, what do they do? They fail the test to abide by the rules of rulership. 
Therefore, they go into exile, all of this stuff. But then Jesus comes hundreds and hundreds of years later as God himself in the flesh to accomplish what was already done. So as he steps on the scene after doing his daily life of carpentry and all types of stuff, he's inaugurating again the kingdom of God that he intended from the beginning. And what is he doing? Saying, hey, 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 I need you to come into my way of life and abide by these boundaries that have always been what was for your good. Mm-hmm. And now people have been able to, it started with Israel, but people can now abide by those rules and become a new humanity through Jesus. And death couldn't hold him. Death, he had to deal with this problem of death as a result of the rebellion. When you rebel against the king, things have consequences. But he was so innocent that death couldn't hold him, as you were talking about earlier, right? Like, mm-hmm. Death rightfully takes over those that deserve it. I'm going to just let that sit there. But then it couldn't hold Jesus because he was fully righteous. So here he is back from the dead and now continues to invite people into this kingdom of God that was always intended. I love that. I love it because like Ryan, you were talking about connecting Old and New Testament. And sometimes people look at the Old Testament as like, oh, yeah, it just shows all the way humans have failed. But actually, you're describing like, oh, Abraham is the recapitulation pattern of how God is going to redeem the world. Mm -hmm. Except it didn't quite work because it was imperfect. Isaac, testing, recapitulation. Joseph, testing, recapitulation. Like crossing the Jordan. Moses, Exodus from Egypt, entering into the promised land. Uh, Ezra Nehemiah, returning from exile. There's a moments of like testing God's prophetic working and his power and recapitulation all imperfect but then actually it's instead of just being like banging your head against a desk and like it's got to be a better way and then Jesus comes along you're like oh hallelujah the cross is totally different actually it crescendos into like oh and Jesus fits all of these patterns mm-hmm. but he's the perfect version of them no yep. flaw yep. this one's going to stick yeah right yeah. and that's why God resurrects him and knowing that there might be, oh yeah, there's the nose on and the point at me. Uh, I just want to say like, so I know there might be some out there who's like, okay, yeah, but sh- show me those nice, pretty little uh, proof texts that uh, give me what I want and prove to me that that's the way the Bible frames that story. Because I could tell a story too. Oh, yeah. I could just say a few different words here and Make there and it, would be, and it would be the classical story that maybe we kind of started with where then penal substitutionary atonement really is kind of the only thing. It's all pointing to the fact that some innocent Jesus has to die and be punished and the full cup of God's angry, angry wrath has to be poured out on him like hot lava and kill him. Um, You could just flip the story differently. But I would say actually there's a lot of good reasons to think, even particularly because starting with the Adam bit and like the guiltiness versus the are we just different because Adam is a figurehead for what, like a blueprint for the way humanity now looks. Adam was made in God's image and all humans are therefore still retain some of that God imagery stuff, but imperfectly. And I would say Adam probably imperfectly as well. Not quite perfect, but that's a different podcast. Um, I'll just make everyone uh, 
raise all sorts of questions there. Anyway. Uh, Just but, look for Ryan on Sunday. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, boy. And put one uh, finger on your nose and point at him. And I'll know and exactly what, what you mean. <laughs> uh, so... Um, he sits in the back. <laughs> oh, thanks, yeah. Um, so, uh, for a quick escape, so that these things don't happen. Uh, no, I'm actually quite open if you want to uh, poke your nose and point at me. Um, anyway, so I would say, actually, there's something really interesting uh, in Genesis 5, particularly to the Adam bit, and seeing that, like, then humans are then kind of created almost in Adam's image, but Adam is this fallen version of humanity and God imaging human is that interestingly enough in uh, Genesis five, when we're looking at uh, the birth of Seth, who's this like seed of the woman and you think, you know, you got Cain and Abel and you think maybe uh, there's one, one of these got to be a good, good seed. And then one kills the other and you quickly realize, well, one seed was good and he's dead now. And one seed is very bad because he killed the other seed. So which one of these is going to crush the serpent? (laughs) I mean, this one likes to murder, apparently. So maybe he'll want to murder the serpent, but it doesn't seem like he's probably going to do that. He's just kicking creatures left, right and center. (laughs) He'll get around to it. (laughs) That's just what he does. So maybe, but not in a good way. So, uh, so there's, so then you're like, well, who's going to be the good seed that will probably in a good way uh, crush the head of the serpent? And you get Seth. And, uh, and so that's why specifically the story tells of the birth of Seth, because you're like, okay, well, another good uh, little seed there. Maybe this will s- start the whole thing. And, uh, but interestingly, Seth is uh, born in the image and likeness of Adam. It doesn't talk, it doesn't drive home that he's made in the image of God or that he's a new seed in the image of God. It kind of just tells you so you kind of have your hopes up a little bit about him but at the same time slightly dashed because you're like well and the image of adam isn't a great start i'm not so sure about that and sure enough uh you know seth himself is not the one to uh spoiler alert yet again the bible's been out for a long time if you didn't know um (laughs) he does not crush the head of the serpent um and so yeah anyway so that's just one thing i i i that yep. text often gets used as like, oh, no, see, we're all still made in the image of God. And I do think that's true. But I don't necessarily think, I think that's the but right doctrine and wrong text. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is showing that it's a broken image. Yes. And then interestingly, when we get Jesus, we're constantly ta- told, Paul especially, and he does a whole Romans 5, 12 through 21 bit that really becomes a good proof text for the typical story of uh, Adam and Jesus and that relation and original guilt and all that. Um, wow. Seemingly a good proof text, Seemingly. but used a lot as the good proof yeah, text. Yeah, I had actually, I've got it up here on my Bible mm. program after you're done oh. to be like, actually, I think if you just read it carefully, yeah. actually it provokes you to think about some other stuff. So, I, And I, I think so too, but it's been often read as like the proof yeah. text. Yeah, the can of worms yeah. there that Hakeem's opening. Well, and that's oh. an interesting thing again about the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's really hard to come to the Bible and just say, yeah, lay some truth on me. Yep. Because yeah. we come with a lens of like, which we do with everything we read. Exactly. Like Nothing wrong with that. You know, you see a note on the fridge and like you think it's from one of your kids, but actually it's from a neighbor and you can just get the wrong end of the stick. Like exactly. there's so much context we bring. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, really easy if we've been told this is the story of God all our life that you mm-hmm. read Romans 5 and think it means one thing. And yeah, it's, it's hard to take a fresh look at it. It is. and Which uh, is why we might need other like brothers and sisters from other traditions to, and, yeah, and I, to interact it's with. Been, it's been brothers and sisters from other traditions and other ways of thinking that have helped me reframe the way I read some of these yeah. things. Like, 
I would have never thought to read because the, the other thing is that you see in um, John, I, I want to say it's 19, but I don't know. When uh, there's Pilate and Jesus and they're talking and uh, we're at a little tribunal scene of Jesus, um, whether or not he's going to die. And Pilate's like, I don't get it. Why do you guys want to kill him? And they're just like, kill him. And he's like, ah, and he washes his hands and everything. But he, he comes out and he goes, behold, the man. Yeah. The interesting little thing that uh, Pontius Pilate there says, just behold, the man. Uh, just very bland but language. That on he's his a, cross, he's like a human. king of the Jews. Yeah, and then on the cross he says king of so the Jews. So it says something different so, later yeah. on. So it's like there's something poignant about this. And I think it's because John, and we know John starts with a lot of Genesis language because in the beginning is how John starts his gospel. Yeah. John, I think, is pointing that the fact that Jesus is the new, the man, because Adam's name in Genesis, really, Adam is just man. It's just, his name was just man. He's just the man, man. And, yep, and Jesus is now the new man, the man. And so it's pointing to something, that Jesus is doing something different. He's he's kind of taking on that Adam role, that headship role, a new form of humanity. And in Romans 8, we, uh, uh, well, Colossians 1.15 talks about him, uh, Jesus being the, the image of the invisible God. So he's not just like made in the image of God. He is the very image of the invisible God. And then Romans 8 tells us that uh, the Holy Spirit is conforming us into the image of God's Son, who is the perfect image of the invisible God. So there's something, like, just want to say, like, there is, it's not just telling, Richard and Hakim have not just told the story this way. That story is very clear when we take a step back and, and allow ourselves to ask a few different questions and highlight new texts yeah. that maybe haven't been highlighted before in the trying to tell the story. Yeah. Um, so. I was going to throw out a couple more texts. One is in Second Peter 1, where it's, it's a classic one for this. He's given us great and precious promises so, so that evokes the faith relationship so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Oh, here we go. So that's that kind of kind thing. So you can become a different nature. Which nature? A divine one. Ooh, like God? Like, yeah. yeah. Who is a a human? How? How Jesus shows that human and God can actually be in this deep, not just relational, but like metaphysical communion. Mm. So, yeah, so that's a classic one. Hold on real quick. Let's dive into that just for a sec. This is interesting to me because when I think about Moses on Sinai and he's in face-to-face, well, super close proximity to God. Face-to-back. Hit- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had an image of God's life. <laughs> oh, he turned around and showed his back to me. So he's glowing in the face. And that's what happens when humans are in right proximity to God they start to glow and they mm-hmm. start to look like an uh, you get what I'm going yep. right or if you look at in the transfiguration yep, yeah. which is like another mm-hmm. recapitulation kind of but Jesus is revealing like his full on who he is in this moment but what is he doing he's glowing as a human because what like that is what it's like to be in that close of or or proper proximity to God yep. and I think I know some terms could get, you know, people going, oh, what are you guys talking about? That sounds like heresy. But like the whole deification piece, theosis, right? Yeah. Like you, I don't know. I just thought that was a yeah. super interesting thought. Well, and quick. you've still got like the centrality of Jesus' humanness. The transfiguration is a moment where we see something, but it it culminates in they looked up 
and saw only Jesus. Mm-hmm. As a human, they could walk down the mountain with. Yep. So it's, again, mm-hmm. it, it's not talking about that being less, but it's a vindication that actually that's enough. Yeah. You know. The other one, was, it was like, you mentioned Romans 5. It's a classic, you know, good one to think about. Um, but verse 19 says, through the disobedience of one man, talking about the original Adam, many became sinners. Mm-hmm. But through the obedience, again, not through the death, but through the obedience of one man, mm-hmm. many will be made righteous. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. so there's this process pointing forward mm-hmm. in both of those. So that's another, yeah, thought-provoking uh, verse about this. There, I Like, I, you know, this could go pretty long, but the other the other really interesting thing about thinking differently and thinking about Jesus's obedience on the cross is thinking about like what what kind of God do we picture on like the other side of these tr- relational transactions going on at the cross, i.e., the Father, because at the whole divine child abuse view mm-hmm. or objection, it kind of pictures a God who says, "Yeah, I love you." Love you so much, I want to whack you and kill you. Mm. And actually, I can't. For, I can't forgive anyone unless I kill someone. Like if I don't get to kill someone, I'm not going to be okay. Mm. Which just seems strange, mm. you know, to lots of people. But then, and and if the only part of the relationship is like, yeah, it, Jesus is being like Second Corinthians five twenty one. Jesus is being made sin so we can be made. He, like righteous like him mm-hmm. which again you can think of substitutionary or you can th- read that verse recapitulationally um make up word of the day smooth though <laughs> i expected more stumble over uh, need a lot of breath to get that one all them syllables yeah, <laughs> but uh yeah it, you know it, you can just see how it's easy to then think oh so like all the father's interested really in is getting to hit someone to make mm. himself feel better but actually, if it's about like utter obedience, and this comes out like there's another, I mean, there's so many views we're not talking about today. There's like Christus Victor that's mm-hmm. all about kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness and, and victory and rescue. And um, there's a sort of federal headship view yeah. that's to, to do with sort of governmental structures in, in the universe. Um, there's a sort of... Uh, satisfaction view mm-hmm. that actually what God needs to be satisfied by is not I got to get to punish someone but hey I created humans to get some good stuff where's the good stuff if I don't get the good stuff we're not okay mm. so it's a different view again so there's loads of views we haven't talked about yeah, but but one of you rooted actually in the Eastern Orthodox tra- tradition is this phrase from I think it's Gregory of Nyssa which is what is not assumed is not healed mm-hmm and so it's interesting because we think, okay, Jesus has, has assumed sinful flesh. But actually, you know, Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus, what he's assuming, what he's incarnating, what he's trying to inhabit and heal is not just like the baby Jesus. Like if we kill baby Jesus in sinful flesh, that's not enough. Hmm. Jesus wants to experience the fullness of a human life in order to heal all of it which means he needs to be obedient and live through a Holy Spirit-empowered, victorious moment in the garden saying yes to his Father's will before the Pharisees saying the right thing. 
before Centurion saying the right thing, like all the way back in his ministry. But he also, he needs to experience what it is for a human to, to feel alienated from their God. Mm-hmm. And he needs to live that experience fully in order to come through the other side, having redeemed it, having healed it. He needs to live the experience of a human death. Hmm. Like he, he needs to live all of human experience to heal it. And so, I mean, that's, you know, that sh- that's a different twist on like some other aspects of why Jesus had to die. Mm-hmm. God's not just like, oh yeah, now I feel better. I got to hit Jesus. Like there's some other stuff going on there where actually what Jesus is doing by living through that is maybe less about God being satisfied and more about us realizing that Jesus actually has healed that too. Yeah, because I think going back to what you were just talking about, I think some folks would point to Isaiah 53 where it was like uh, God was pleased to crush him or something along that. And... uh, yeah, what, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think it, it does uh, point to... Let me find it, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and uh, it, it's um, a little bit of Isaiah 52 and 53, but 53 in particular has the, like, real strong language. Yeah. like, verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet mm-hmm. we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Hmm. And the Lord that goes on, like we're sheep that have gone astray, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, which is classic substitution language, which does come out of... This is not language that's riffing on Western themes about legal and moral punishment and transactions. Mm-hmm. This is language that's riffing on the sort of cultic worship and sacrifice in the temple. Hmm. So it's another warning. Like it's really easy yeah. to think what's going on in the temple is it, what the Western world would think is going on with sacrifice. Yeah, and I think that would be the biggest thing is trying to do better at framing the substitutionary view of atonement with the Jewish yep. sacrificial system. And and that is thoroughly biblical. And I mean, we can probably do better at even understanding the sacrificial system. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> the Jewish sacrificial system, We we I think we don't quite have a great understanding oh, of that. Well, that's another revolution um, in a way in modern scholarship as people are realizing they've read back Western cultural values into the way we read the Torah mm-hmm. and have got it all ass about face. Yep. yep. Yeah. And, uh, and so... But yeah, that that would be the thing is that this is this certainly is a good text to show. Like, yeah, it's a biblical idea that there's some sort of sacrificial and substitutionary sort of thing that's going on. At the end of the day, like Christ is the slain lamb. That's just, I mean, straight up. Like we're yep. we're told, no avoiding this that is, one. <laughs> yeah, like what are you going to do with the Lord's Supper? You know, Jesus instituting this from on Leviticus Passover, to Revelation. John, yeah. it's, all, it's all the way through that theme. <laughs> so what are you going to do about that? Like he did die, and did die in the way that a lamb was slain for the sinful people who brought that lamb as a sacrifice. We, mm-hmm. you, there's no getting around that. And Isaiah 53 is showing that the suffering servant, speaking quite prophetically to the coming Messiah, um, which is Jesus, that, that this is what would happen. Um, so, so, yeah, so I, I, I mean, just to say, I, I think we need to yeah. 
Yeah. Definitely hold on to that text. And, and that's the that. challenge is putting this jigsaw together and not losing a piece mm-hmm. yeah. or, you know, flipping yeah. it over. Or adding or, pieces from other yeah, puzzles. All that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, pre- yeah. And, and the verse I was particularly aiming at was 53 verse 10. And some translations will say it, like God was pleased to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offer. He, and then others will say it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Da, 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 da. But then we totally negate like the rest of that verse, mm-hmm. which is resurrection language as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Like he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How can all of that happen if he's just dead? Right. Like it's, you just crushed him. How is he prolonged? In his what's days? going on? So that whole thing is just like, yeah, like the. Jesus suffered in death. There's no getting around that. He was mm-hmm. crushed for sure. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, this is not the end of the verse. Like, let's not paint the whole picture again with Jesus just died for your sins. Yeah. Yeah, but he rose from the grave. Like you it's a it's a more holistic thing. If you're just telling me again, if you tell young Hakeem, hey, Jesus just died for your sins, and now again you don't have to deal with eternal punishment. Cool, bro. But like what happened to him? So he just got killed for me? And that's it? You I have to paint. That's not good news, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, some dude just died for me. Like, that's, I mean, thanks, but what about you, bro? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, um, I just found that verse to always be so interesting because yeah. it was the verse I would go to. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but what about them being crushed for our iniquities? It's like, yeah, there's a more holistic uh, And the way we think about sacrifice, like, mm-hmm. because we're so affected by this Western theological tradition. When we say, oh yeah, so a dude comes to the temple, offers a sacrifice, who gets affected? Like, oh, God does. He gets satisfied. He wanted to kill that guy, but now the sacrifice, God's the one that changes because of the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And it's like, does the dude offering it not get changed? Mm. Like, and there's a, there's a view of the atonement that I've, like, I don't even have language for it because I probably need to write a book about it. But it's sort of, you know, we, we think about guilt, we think about shame, but it really bottoms out a relationship. And we, we're we in this weird place in our culture where, especially for millennials and younger, shame is coming back on the table, but it's not really being recognized through the language and concepts of shame. So it's sort of coming undercover. And some of the guilt stuff is going away as we become sort of post-Christian and a bit more post-modern. Like, it's, it's hard for that to have sociological pull on our yeah. relationships. Mm-hmm. But it, it bottoms out on relationships. Like, why does God, why does someone need to die? Hmm. Like, is it because God can't forgive unless he kills someone or it wouldn't be just? Hmm. Or is it because, you know, if Ryan steals my book and I say, don't worry about it, he walks away being like, oh, cool. I still feel bad that I stole Richard's book. Mm. I wish there's something I could do that would actually heal the relationship, would reconcile the relationship. And that's where, you know, maybe if he gave me $20, was like, okay, like, okay, don't worry about it. All right, but next time we're out, I'm going to buy you a drink because thanks for the book. Or like something. Yeah. And like buy me a drink is satisfaction theory. Pay you twenty dollars is penal penal theory. But like mm. there's there's all different this is in all of these different ways of thinking about the atonement, but like it's aiming at like not just God being satisfied, but reconciliation. Yeah. Because we're by participating in Christ, by this union with Christ through which we get changed, the aim then is God created the whole universe because he wanted to like be in communion with it. 
Yeah. So like that's the driving aim of all of this is yeah. relationship with the Father. So Jesus, that's a whole nother can of worms. And Jesus says, I feel like we missed this point. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Yeah. Like he voluntarily does this. I think that's a straight critique to the divine child abuse thing. It's like right. the father didn't have to manipulate the son to be convinced to do yeah. Uh, this sacrifice. No, the son said, I'm going to lay down my life. Ain't nobody taking this from me. This is me choosing to do so. So I just think once we take Jesus at his own words, like it, it shuts down a lot of our presuppositions about what the atonement or the cross actually yep. meant. Mm-hmm. Well, we're way over time. Loads <laughs> to think about, clearly. Um, we we do have uh, some books we like. Mm-hmm. If you are like, oh, this is cool. Because clearly we've not clarified this for you. We're just trying to shake you up like, hey, there's loads of cool stuff to think about here. Go nerd out about it. Um, so one of them, I'll go for one I just read recently. It's really good. It's called The Nature of the Atonement, and it's by Oliver Crisp. We'll put some links in the notes. And it's a sort of shorter survey of different views. Yeah. Um, so that's really good. And I was going to say The Mosaic of Atonement, which is by Joshua McNall, kind of gives a bunch of approaches and how they all fit together. Yeah, yeah. that's a newer book as well. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, oh, boy. Uh, one I would say is, uh, oh, what is the name of it? Um, oh, Recovering the Scandal of the Cross by yeah. uh, Baker and Green is good. Uh, N.T. Wright has uh, a book called The Day the Revolution Began, which yep, speaks good to one. some of that. Um, real good. Also, one of my favorites, Eleanor Stump, a book called mm. Atonement. Atonement. Or, there's no shortage of books. There you yeah. go. There's five. That's enough. Yeah. That's if good. you if you get done with those, then go find Ryan uh, or me, and yeah, we'll you, give you another recommendation. If Bible. you're only satisfied with 20 <laughs> book recommendations at a time, then <laughs> I have no shortage. Neither of us do. All right. That's enough. Have a good week, everyone. Peace. Thanks for listening to this episode of the House of Learning podcast. This podcast is produced by A Jesus Church College, based at Westside A Jesus Church in Portland, Oregon. AJC College trains and mobilizes the next generation of kingdom leaders through an accredited four-year degree in biblical studies with an emphasis on leadership and formation. We combine classroom learning with mentoring and ministry apprenticeship for a third of the cost of traditional college. To find out more, go to ajccollege.org or follow us on Instagram to find out if this is where God could be calling you to explore your calling. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share it with someone. And if you have a question you'd like us to chat about, please let us know. You can email us at podcast at ajccollege.org. If you can, send us a 20-second audio recording saying who you are and where you're from along with your question, and we'd love to include it in a future episode.